You are listening to a sermon from MCA Church. To learn more about our community, head online to mcachurch.ca. Thanks. Thanks, Brendan. It's a lot, lot to roll through this morning. You did great. Uh, and uh, yeah, we just want to invite you into what the Lord is doing here at Mission Creek Alliance Church. The church is not a building, it is a people. Uh, it's a people who, li- who have encountered the love of Jesus uh, and are on mission with him uh, in his redemptive mission in the world. Uh, I mentioned back in September that the leadership had been praying uh, about uh, the things that we, we were asking the Lord, what do you want to grow us in as a church? And two things came to the surface for us. One was we felt the Lord inviting us to grow in our ability to hear God's voice in our lives. I mean, because if we really want to be effective, like living into this dynamic union that that God has given us through Christ, we need to learn to hear his voice a little better in our life. And so we've taken some steps. We've had some prayer courses in the fall. Uh, we've, We've worked through a sermon series. But the second thing that we felt the Lord inviting us to to grow in is joining uh, him in his redemptive mission, uh, wherever we find ourselves in. Uh, And we're going to take some more steps uh, in the new year for that. But one thing that I want to get on your radar uh, is that uh, from uh, April the 29th to May the 8th, uh, we are going to be participating in a a short-term missions trip to Mexico City. And so I want to let you know about this now because we have an information uh, night that's coming up on November the 13th that I want to let you know about. And and maybe uh, you're thinking, hey, well, I've never thought about going on a missions trip before. Uh, But maybe the Lord's stirring something in your heart uh, and you're thinking, you know what, I want to be part of this. Uh, So I want to get it on your radar and invite you to come to our information session, which will be after the Sunday service on November the 13th, Uh, and uh, and you'll be able to hear a little bit more about the trip, what we'll be doing there, uh, and consider uh, applying to be on that trip. Now, we can't take everyone, so if everyone wants to come, I'm sorry, we just can't quite do that, Uh, but we're looking to take a team of about 10 uh, to 12 people. Uh, and if so, if you're the age of 16 or older, uh, uh, maybe there's, uh, there's a few people from a family that wanted to, to, to consider, we just want you to come out to this information night, hear some more, or I- information afternoon uh, to hear some more. So mark that on your calendar. So this morning, we're beginning a new sermon series where uh, I'm calling it Imagining the Kingdom. Uh, and I want to spend some time uh, living in the parables that Jesus tells in Luke's gospel. But before we get there, I would love to pray together. Uh, And I'd love to pray the Lord's Prayer together. We don't often do this, but it's a prayer that has been prayed over and over uh, for for centuries (laughs) Uh, as uh, as the church gathers to pray uh, uh, to the Lord. So I invite you to stand uh, with me. Uh, The words are on the screen. I'll lead us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom the power and the glory are yours. 
both now and forever. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. For some of you, maybe who haven't prayed that in a while, you, you were thrown by the last line. They've done some edits and updates and stuff, but uh, the prayer is all the same. <laughs> There's a, there's a lot in here. There's a lot in, in this prayer. And, and one of the reasons I want to begin by praying it is I want to draw your attention to one line in particular. And it's the line that, that we pray that has been prayed over and over uh, for generations. It's when we pray, Father in heaven, may your kingdom come on earth just as it is in heaven. What do you think that looks like? What do you think it looks like when God answers that prayer for his kingdom as it is in heaven to come upon the earth? What would that look like in your life or in your work? What would it look like for, for, for heaven to come to the earth, for the kingdom to be manifest in your school or in our church, in our city? My question at the outset is, is, is really this. Do you have an imagination for God's kingdom come upon the earth? Do you know the shape your life might take as God answers this prayer that we pray over and over and over again, generation after generation? Do you have an imagination for it? Albert Einstein has said, imagination is everything. It is the preview of life's coming attractions. <laughs> I love that. And I think what he's getting at here is important for the church. It's important for us. He's saying that without an imagination for how the future might be, we are destined to remain in the present. Without an imagination for, for, for how things could be, the, the way God intends things to be, without that imagination, we are destined to remain in the present. Church, sometimes the reason our Christian lives stagnate is because we have no imagination for all that God has dreamed for us. We have little imagination for our life in Christ as, as, we, as we go to work and fold the laundry or attend our classes. I mean, I wonder what the kingdom come on earth would look like in those places. Sometimes we have little imagination for what it looks like to join God's redemptive mission in those places. We might think of joining God's mission as we go to Mexico City or as we go across the world, but what imagination do you have for joining God's redemptive mission, seeing his kingdom come as you fold the laundry in your living room, as you attend calculus classes, as you go to work? Sometimes we have little imagination for God's kingdom come. And here's the thing. Jesus wants to develop your sanctified imagination for what his kingdom come might look like in your life. See, Jesus spoke to our imagination all the time. He would often speak to the imagination. In fact, I would submit to you that it is his primary way of teaching as we read in the Gospels. Jesus told stories. He told stories to help people imagine what the kingdom of God was truly like. 
He told stories uh, to, to, to help our imagination picture what the God of the kingdom is truly like. And we call those stories the parables. Jesus said things like this. He said, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. And it grew, and it became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. He told stories like this. The kingdom of God is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus is speaking with a word picture, a parable. He speaks to the imagination with these stories. And the question is why? Why does Jesus choose to speak, to teach, to, 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 to speak in these parables? Now, some have suggested that, that the answer to that question is because Jesus wants to make things simple for us. He tells the stories because he wants to make complex realities about God and his kingdom easier for us to understand. But can I just say to you that that's never how I've experienced the parables myself? They don't always make things easier. <laughs> In fact, when I, I hear the parables, when I read them, I'm often left scratching my head. I mean, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that a man plants in a garden and it grows to a tree and birds are in its branches. I mean, what? <laughs> I make it simpler. It's like yeast that's mixed into 60 pounds of flour and it, it, it's in the loaf. Like, what? <laughs> this makes it simpler. I don't find that the parables make anything simpler, to be honest. Though they are simple enough to understand, they're anything but simple. But here's what I do know about the parables. The parables are these God-directed stories that are intended to work on our imagination. They help us think and dream and act in keeping with the kingdom of God and the God of the kingdom. And Jesus teaches in parables because he wants to change our minds. He wants to change our perspective. He wants to give us a story that we carry with us into our lives. You see, as, as a teacher, Jesus isn't concerned simply to fill our heads with information. But he wants to give us a story that we can live with, that we can live into, that we carry with us. And so, over the next nine months, we're going to spend a good deal of time living in the parables that Jesus told in Luke's gospel. By my count, there are 24 different parables. And some weeks we'll take two at a time, other weeks we'll take one at a time. Uh, we're, we're going to spend a, a chunk of time here before Advent in the parables, then we're going to take a break, and then we're going to pick them up again sometime in the winter, and then a bit in the spring, and a bit in the summer, and we're going to have a few different series throughout. But essentially, over the next nine months, we're going to spend time imagining the kingdom together through the parables Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke. So I invite you to turn with me to the first one. It's the first parable. Actually, I actually think there are two parables at play, two word pictures at play uh, as we begin, as we come to them in Luke chapter 5. So I invite you to turn with me there to Luke chapter 5. I don't know what, what page it is uh, in the Pew Bible, but uh, uh, it's somewhere around here, uh, closer to the end than the front. Um, 
Or you can turn there in your device, Luke 5, verses 33 to 38. Hear the word of the Lord. They said to him, they, meaning the Pharisees, and him, meaning Jesus, they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But in time, uh, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. And then he told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And, the, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say, the old is better. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Jesus, uh, this morning, um, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to our sanctified imaginations. (laughs) Give us a vision for your kingdom come in our lives. Through picture, through these stories, Help us to see what you want us to see. And help us to carry into our lives what you want us to carry into our lives. That your kingdom might come on earth just as it is in heaven, we pray. Amen. Okay, our, our text, this, these first set of parables, like I said, I, I believe there are two word pictures here. One is called a parable, the other one isn't, but I believe they're both parables. And our parables, this text begins with Jesus who is being confronted by the religious leaders of his day. And verse 33, this is what they say to him. They say, Jesus, John's disciples, they are often fasting and praying and, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus is being asked why his disciples are, 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 are feasting rather than fasting. And if you kind of look a little further up in your Bible, a little earlier in chapter 5, you see that that is actually what is taking place. Uh, the previous stories are all about Jesus and his disciples who, who are attending these, these great banquets with all kinds of people. Or more accurately, they're attending parties with all the wrong kinds of people, right? They're called sinners and tax collectors in the text, but essentially it's referring to, to this, this tax collector group, which were a bunch of kind of sellouts of the faith, so to speak, that they pledged more allegiance to Caesar and collecting money from Caesar than following the ways of God. And, and so they were considered sellouts among the people of faith. And sinners refers to a, a group of people who were particularly uh, um, uh, seen as outcasts in society. They were from the wrong side of the tracks. They participated in the wrong kinds of things. They're the kind of people that religious people simply won't eat with. 
right? And so in verse 33, the religious establishment points out the obvious. They say, Jesus, you and your disciples are eating and drinking. And not simply eating and drinking, but doing that with all the wrong kind of people. While John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples are doing the more respectable, the more spiritual thing. They're fasting and praying. So what's the deal with that? This is how our text begins. But I want to take you a little deeper into the context to understand what's taking place here because we need to know this in order to hear what Jesus is saying with this picture. There are two groups of fasters here. John the Baptist's disciples, who are called the Essenes. It was a group of people who were particularly... uh, uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Pious. They were, uh, they, they were full of zeal for the Lord. The Essenes, that's the one set of fasters. They're John the Baptist's disciples. The second are the Pharisees and their disciples. And together, these two groups, the Essenes and the Pharisees, they represent, now mark this, they represent groups of people who loved God. People who were seriously devoted to following God. See, sometimes when when we talk about the Pharisees, they get a bad rap, don't they? (laughs) And maybe it's a well-earned bad rap. They're often painted in a negative light. But what we have to understand is that many of the Pharisees, they, they truly did love God. They wanted to order their lives around him and his way, his commandments. They were committed. They were devout, even though sometimes they were misguided. And so when they fasted, the Essenes and the Pharisees, their hearts were often in the right place. These aren't the the villains, per se, of the story. But we need to understand that the Pharisees and the Essenes, they fasted for different reasons. Two different groups that fasted who fasted for two different reasons. The Pharisees... They fasted as a way of bringing themselves before God into his presence in order to ask him to meet their need. So fasting, let me just say this, fasting simply is like praying with our body. I heard that definition. We've been talking about that as a staff, praying with our body. And the Pharisees, they fasted to call on God's presence in order to attend to their needs. We're just, we're just going to take a moment. Bless you, Joey. Let's just take a moment. Jesus, we just want to pray your blessing uh, today on Joey, uh, and we just ask that you would, uh, yeah, you'd be with her, uh, that you would uh, bring your health, um, uh, and so uh, just in what's, what, whatever has taken place, I don't know, but we just pray your, your provision, uh, your presence, that's what we're talking about, Jesus, fasting for your, your presence and provision. And how you, you, you love that, you delight in that. And so we just bring that before you on behalf of Joey, and we just pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. And so 
The Pharisees uh, in these scenes, they, they fast for two different reasons. Uh, the, the, the Pharisees fast in order to come before God into his presence asking for his provision. And, and we see that throughout, we see this primarily throughout the Old Testament, right? That when people uh, prayed and fasted in, in a time of drought, they would pray and fast for God's presence to return to the, the, the earth, so to speak, his blessing, and that he would send rain. Or in times of tragedy, they would, they would pray and fast for, for God to, to kind of show up, so to speak, and to end their sorrow. And so the Pharisees, they fasted to call on God's presence and his provision. But then you've got John the Baptist's disciples, the Essenes, and they fasted with a different focus. See, the Essenes, they were really serious about God's holiness, and so for them, when they fasted, they fasted as a, a way of asking for God's forgiveness. It was a fast of repentance. It was calling out to God to, to forgive sin. And they believed that if, if God's people would, would, would be forgiven of their sins, if they returned to him, then in some way God would establish his kingdom upon the earth. And so we have these two groups the Pharisees who fasted for God's presence and provision and John's disciples who fast for his forgiveness in order to usher in God's kingdom. And so the question then arises, Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting when all the rest are? And Jesus answers the question with a story. It's a parable. In verse 34, and Jesus said, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? And he goes on, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. The word picture that Jesus paints here is a scene out of a wedding. Now, all of us, we've, we've been to a wedding before, I presume, or, 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 or at least you've seen one on TV. We've been to a wedding. We know the scene. There's smiles and, and laughter, and there's food and wine. There's, there's music and dancing. There's toasts and speeches. There, there's the clinking of glasses. There's, there's that one uncle that you kind of wish didn't come to the wedding, right? <laughs> Maybe not at every wedding. <laughs> but fasting at a wedding is wildly out of place, wildly out of place. And here's the thing, in this, this parable, Jesus points to himself as the bridegroom. And he says, why would anyone fast when the bridegroom is in their midst? You know, often when Jesus tells his parables, these stories, they come with a twist. They, they come with a surprise. So let me help you hear the twist. To the Pharisees, he is saying, why would you fast for God's presence and provision when the very thing you are fasting for is standing right in front of you? God's presence and provision. To the Essenes, he is saying, why would you fast for God's forgiveness from sin when the very thing you're fasting for is standing right in front of you? Why would you fast for God's rule and reign to come upon the earth when the very thing you're fasting for is standing right in front of you? The bridegroom is here. It's not time to fast. It's time to celebrate. 
And herein lies the surprise. Jesus is saying to this group of, uh, of people that, that fasting was never the point. Fasting was and still is simply a means to an end. This religious activity uh, is good, but it's a vehicle to reach a destination. And the time has come, Jesus says, the destination has been reached. Mark this, church, with Jesus, God's presence and provision has arrived. With Jesus, God's forgiveness has come for each of us. His rule and his reign has come upon the earth. Isn't that good news? It's the gospel. Jesus's or God's presence is found in Jesus Christ. God's forgiveness is found in Jesus the Messiah. God's rule and reign comes to the earth in him. It's the gospel. It's an invitation into a brand new life. And Jesus says, why would you fast when the very thing you've been fasting for is standing in your midst? And for millennia, people have prayed for God's kingdom to come upon the earth. Even today we pray for it because we know we've had a taste and there's more. But this prayer for God's kingdom to come, it's been prayed uh, over and over again. And, and, and at the core of it, it's, it's a prayer that God would make right everything that is wrong. Jesus, make right everything that's wrong in my life, in our world. It's a prayer for God to make everything that is broken new again. And in the past, in the story that Jesus is telling, people would, would pray and petition. They would fast and cry out. They, they'd build religious rituals and services to pray that single prayer. And then Jesus arrives, and he says, your prayers are answered. Now it's time for a whole new life to begin. Jesus is saying, the holy God is here to reunite himself with unholy people, so come join the party. Come join the party. I mean, this is why uh, celebrations broke out amongst sinners and tax collectors, because they were never invited by religious people to parties. And Jesus is saying, come and be part of the family of God. And for some of the religious types, this is, this is a really hard message because it's, wait a minute, I thought we had a corner on the market. And Jesus says, look, you've been praying and, and fasting and, and I'm here. Jesus, why are your disciples feasting when all the rest are fasting? Jesus says, it's because the kingdom of God has come in me and you're invited to the party. And the question is, have you joined the party? God has done something in human history to make way for the brokenness in our lives and in our world to be undone, <laughs> to be remade through the power of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. That we could be forgiven of sin. That all of sin's curse can be taken up in him and healed. 
so that we might be reconciled to the Father, reconciled to one another, reconciled to the creation that God has entrusted to us, even reconciled to our own sense of self. It's because Jesus has come to bring the fullness of his life in heaven to bear on the earth, in us. And the question is, have you received and responded to Jesus' invitation? Have you stepped into the whole new life in the kingdom of God? I mean, maybe you're here this morning and, and, and you feel like there are things that are out of sync with your, in your life. And disclaimer, there is. We all have them. But here's the thing. God has done something in Jesus Christ to set right all that's wrong in you and in our world. And the only way that we can step into that life is if we say yes to Jesus. He's our only hope. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And he's the only way to the Father. Have you joined your life to Jesus? Have you stepped into a whole new life in God's kingdom because it's a beautiful life? It's the one that invites sinners and tax collectors, outsiders and sellouts and all the wrong kind of people, invites them in and says, look, I have a new way. Come join me at the party. The very thing you've been praying and fasting for is in front of you. And so it's not time to fast, it's time to celebrate. And so, in effect, the religious leaders ask Jesus, why don't your disciples fast when all the others do? He answers, because the kingdom of God is here and you're invited to the party. And then Jesus tells them another parable. Look at verse 36 to 38. I think the last verse is on there. But anyways, 36 to 38. Listen to this. Jesus says, no one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch for the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, uh, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. I want you to notice what Jesus is doing here. He's speaking about old and new. And he's speaking to our imagination about old and new. Old and new garments, old and new wine, old and new wineskins. Uh, but we know that he's not talking about, about clothes and drinks, right? <laughs> he's saying something about his new life. The new life that we receive when we enter his kingdom. He's saying something about the new life that was taking place around the table with sinners and tax collectors. He, he's saying something about that new life that we receive when we enter his kingdom. When we accept his gospel invitation to the wedding party. He wants to give us an imagination for the new life that we have in Christ. And so what exactly is he saying? What thoughts does he want to evoke in us? Well, let's imagine for a moment. Think about your new life with Jesus. Think of your life with Jesus as a new patch of material. Now imagine that new patch is sewed on to the old garment of your life. 
What's the effect? Something doesn't fit, does it? Doesn't jive. Because the colors don't match. Or when you put your garment in the washing machine, the new one shrinks a little bit and it doesn't quite fit up around the edges. <laughs> or think about your new life with Jesus as new wine. Now, that new wine is poured into an old wineskin of your life. A wineskin simply were the things they put wine in before they had glass bottles. <laughs> And the new wine of your life in Christ is poured into an old wineskin of your life. What's the effect? Something doesn't jive, does it? The worn-out wineskin, it, it can burst. It can be sticky. It can be full of mold. Jesus is saying the new life he offers is all-encompassing. It's not meant to be mixed with the old. It's, that's not how life in his kingdom works. Mark this, church. The gospel of Jesus isn't something you add to your existing life. Let me say it again. The gospel of Jesus isn't something you add to your existing life. It's an invitation into a radically new life. A whole new life altogether. One where Jesus is the Lord of everything. All of it. Every piece. See, sometimes we treat the new life that Jesus brings like this new patch on an old pair of jeans. I know for some of you young people, you have no idea what I'm talking about because your jeans are just ripped, okay? <laughs> Danielle, you're not wearing your ripped jeans today, so hey, hey, way to go. No, that's good. You can wear ripped jeans, no problem. <laughs> not, that's not the problem. <laughs> I just know my daughter has jeans and I pay extra, so they rip them. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> if that happens to you. And sometimes that's how we treat our, our new life with Jesus. It's like this new patch on an old pair of jeans. Uh, we receive his salvation. We get this fresh start with God, but we go on living like we used to. We let Jesus into our hearts, so to speak, but we keep him out of our wallets. We let Jesus into our hearts but we keep him out of our decision-making or our business dealings or our Saturday night plans or our opinions about sex and sexuality. It's like putting a new patch on an old pair of jeans. Church, in order to truly see God's kingdom come in our lives, we need to give Jesus the whole thing. The whole thing. Because that's the way the kingdom works. It's all encompassing. I mean, isn't this what the Apostle Paul is getting at in, in 2 Corinthians 5.17? It's, a, it's a, quite a well-known verse when he says this. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, and the new has come. The new is here. New. The old is gone, the new is here. The Greek word that Paul uses here is, is, for new is the word kaine. And now there are two different Greek words in the New Testament uh, for uh, the word new. There's two of them. One is the word neo, which means uh, a, a new phase or a new chapter. 
But this isn't the word that Paul selects in saying that the new has come in Christ. Jesus doesn't simply write a new chapter in your story. Right? It's, it's not a new patch on an old garment. Paul uses a different word here, and it's the word kine, which means never been used before. Brand spanking new, virgin new. If anyone has trusted their life to Jesus, that kind of new story has begun. It's not simply a new patch on the garment of your life. Jesus does something so revolutionary in people as we submit to him, as we surrender to him, and it's like we're born again. Stains are removed. Purity is restored. Old, destructive ways of living for the self are left behind. It's not a new patch. It's a new person. It's the way the kingdom works. Church, perhaps for you, you've come to this place in your life where you've got one foot in the kingdom and one foot out. You're one foot in the church and one foot out. One foot following Jesus, one foot following the culture. I don't know what that looks like for you, but, but maybe there's, there's a half measure that, you have, that you've settled for, that you find yourself in. And to be honest, I, I get it. I've been there too in my own life. But Jesus wants to spark your imagination. Not simply for all that you're missing, but for all that it could be. What his kingdom come looks like in your life. And so the question is, what are you holding back? What part of the old garment are you clinging to? Where's your old wineskin? Spirit of God, speak to your people. Because we know that, that these are the things that get in the way of fully living out your kingdom here on earth. Fully experiencing it. What are you holding back, church? What is the old? Jesus' parable ends with a warning. It's in the last verse. It's a warning about what holds us back from going all in with Jesus. And it's our human tendency to cling to the old, the familiar. Listen, the last verse, Jesus says, And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Now, I fully believe Jesus knows that the old wine is better, because old wine is better than new wine. For I've never tasted it before, but... Uh, if you have, I have tasted it before. <laughs> I, I, we know old wine is better than new wine. But the point that Jesus is making here is that our preference for the old keeps us from experiencing the new. That's why he adds that last sentence. Because if you check the logic of it, it doesn't quite make sense in what he's saying. Unless we realize that's what he, this is the point he's making. It's our preference for the old, the old wine that keeps us from experiencing the new. Our old dysfunctional ways of living, they, they keep us from experiencing the new. Or our old disobedience 
or pride. It keeps us from experiencing the new. The old unforgiveness that we have against someone else. Or the old fears that we live with. The old expectations. Our old laziness and apathy. The old sometimes gets in the way of the new. Oh, but church, the bridegroom's here. And he loves you. We don't come into the kingdom by getting our act together. We're loved into the kingdom. And Jesus loves every square inch of you. And he's saying the old is on its way out. And the new is here in me. You don't need to hold back. For the kingdom is yours. Church, it's time to give every part of yourself and your old life to Christ. Not just the parts you want him to have, but every part. So his kingdom might come on earth just as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, You love your church. <laughs> you, you love your church. You, you, you love those of us who, who long to, to fast and pray. You, you, love, you love us. <laughs> and you've loved us in your kingdom. And Lord, we also know that, that you love <laughs> those beyond the four walls of this church. But I, I wouldn't even say sinners and tax collectors because that's me, that's us. But Jesus, we want to affirm today that you love the world you created. You love us. And that you don't leave us to languish in life, but you have come so that we might know God's, uh, God's uh, presence, his provision, his forgiveness. And that as we submit our lives to you, Jesus, that you would establish your kingdom here on the earth so others would know your glory and your story. And so, Lord, I want to just create space for your Holy Spirit and for our, our people to pray. And, and, and so, people, I just invite you. What's the old pair of jeans that you need to give to Jesus today? What is that in your life? Just take a moment to be silent and, and, and pray. And even in your imagination, hand them to him. Jesus, we, uh, we pray that in these days you would be making us the church in every sense of the word. Make us your holy people, your loving people, your people on mission. God, I, I can't do that. None of us in the room can do that, but you can. And so we invite you, Jesus, step by step, week after week, as we surrender our lives to you. Build us into something more than we are today so that the world beyond these walls could see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.